Well, hello, everyone. How's everyone doing today? You doing all right? Hey, listen, I don't know if you uh, saw this in the paper. It was kind of pushed to the back end of the paper because of all of the big news with uh, Wall Street and the banking crisis and the Palin-Biden you know, debate and all the news with that. But on the back section, I don't know if you saw it or not, there was a, a story about a, 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 a real affluent uh, Chicago lawyer uh, who came down to Texas uh, for some dove hunting. And uh, he was out hunting, and he shot a dove, and it fell on the other side of a, of a fence. And so he climbed over the fence to get his dove, and sitting on a tractor was an old farmer with his big cowboy boots on. And the farmer said, what are you doing? Did you see this in the paper? He said, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm here to get my dove. He says, well, you can't have that dove. This is on my private property. And the Chicago lawyer is arrogant as they can be, says, I don't think you know who I am. I'm a high-end attorney in Chicago, and if you don't give me my dove, I'll sue you for everything you've got. Well, the Texas farmer simply said, you know, that's not how we do things here in Texas. And the lawyer says, well, how do you do things in Texas? The farmer says, well, we have what we call the Texas three kick rule here. Well, what's that? He says, well, basically, I kick you three times, and you kick me three times, and back and forth until we see who gives in, and that's how we determine the winner. And the attorney is looking at this old farmer and says, I think I can take this guy. And so he says, you're on. So the old farmer gets off of his tractor with his big cowboy boots on and says, I'll go first. And so he throws the first kick at this attorney, and this attorney says to himself, oh, my goodness, this old farmer's got some kick. But before he could come to his senses, uh, the second kick comes to him and the attorney falls to the ground. He's about down for the count. I mean, he is in excruciating pain. But before he could do anything about it, the third kick comes across his head and he's seeing stars. He almost passes out, but he lays there. And finally, with uh, the, the, the ingenuity and the intensity of a Chicagoan, he stands up. And he puts his hands on his waist and he says, now, old farmer, it's my turn. And the farmer said, nah, I give up. You can have the dove. <laughs> you know, we all solve problems differently. We all solve conflicts differently. Now, I having, having lived in Chicago and Texas, I do prefer the way Texans make decisions. I really, really do. But we all make decisions differently. So I want to throw a problem uh, up to you and see if you might be able to solve it. Here it is. Each one of us in this room was conceived in our mother's womb with a sin nature. Now listen to this. That sin nature is the single barrier between us and God. That sin nature keeps us from a relationship with God, and it's also the cause of our death. Here's the problem. How are you going to remove that sin nature so we might get back at a relationship with God and enjoy the vision he had to be with us? How are you going to do that? Well, I can tell you that not even your boots will help you with this problem. Only God has the solution to this problem. And that's what the story is all about. God's relentless pursuit to remove the sin nature that keeps us from a relationship with him. That's what the story is all about. 
And today we've come to chapter 4 and we're going to understand more clearly God's plan. So if you brought your story, I'm going to invite you to first of all hold it up or your Bible. Let me see them. Fantastic. And I want you to turn to chapter 4. Now in chapter 3 you may recall that the nation of Israel, this nation that God has built himself for the purpose of revealing himself and his plan to get us back, this nation has been spared a terrible famine which would have wiped them out, and he does it through his power and the leadership of a young man named Joseph, and, and the children of Israel are moved to the nation of Egypt, and they are spared from the famine. Now at the opening of chapter 4, we discover two things. Number one, that the nation of Israel is still in Egypt at the opening of chapter 4, or the book of Exodus. And number two, 400 years have passed. Now on page 35, or Exodus chapter 1, we also discover that during this 400 years, that Israel has become a great nation. As a matter of fact, when Joseph moved his dad, Jacob, or Israel, from Canaan to Egypt, there was about 70 members of the family or the nation. But now we open up the book of Exodus 400 years later and we see that there are literally thousands upon thousands of Israelites. But it says to us in the opening pages of the story in chapter 4 that the death of Joseph and the arrival of the new Pharaoh and this Pharaoh's lack of knowledge of the past and what brought them to the place where they were at and the Egyptians as well became intimidated and fearful at the strength of numbers and the power of the Israelites among them. So they decided to oppress the Israelites and even place them in slavery. And if that wasn't enough, the Pharaoh gave out an edict to decide to stunt or slow the growth of the Israelites down by requiring that all Hebrew boys born be thrown in the river Nile. But this turn of events, which seems devastating to the unfolding of God's plan, up and down, up and down, is a great opportunity for God to show up and reveal three things. Number one, to reveal his name. Number two, to reveal his power. And number three, to reveal his plan. And he's going to do this through an individual named Moses. And it says to us on page 38 of the story that Moses is a little reluctant. He feels somewhat unqualified for this encounter. And on page 38 he says to God, Pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. I love that. This is precisely the kind of person that God is looking for. And he armed Moses with this task. Go to the mighty Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. In the reading of the story in chapter 4, the book of Exodus, six times God is either telling Moses to tell this to Pharaoh or Moses is saying it to the face of Pharaoh. 
Can you imagine if God selected you to, for this assignment? Here you are, Moses. You don't feel like you have the gift of speaking. You stutter a little bit. And God invites you to go before the most powerful man in Egypt who even thinks of himself as the son of the God of Ra and look him in the eye with nothing going on in your life and saying, let my people go. How would you say that? Well, let's practice it. I want you to say that with me. Ready? How would you say this to Pharaoh? Ready? Let my people go. Think you'd be convinced? Let's try it again. Let my people go. One more time. Let my people go. Whew, I'm a little intimidated. I might actually let them go. Well, the first thing that God's going to do is he's going to reveal his name. When God's talking to Moses at that famous burning bush experience where he calls Moses to this task, Moses asks this question on page 37 of the story, or Exodus chapter 3 and verse 13. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I tell them? God answers Moses on the top of page 38, or verse 14 of Exodus chapter 3. God responds, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. What kind of name is that? I am. Well, if you look in the Hebrew, this phrase, I am who I am, this is how it looks when it's transliterated into the English. Let's put that on the screen. I want you to take a look at that carefully and see if you might be able to see a name of God emerging out of this. Do you see it? You see it? All right, let's take a look at it. This is a clear reference to the name Yahweh. Some of you didn't know where the name Yahweh came from. In, uh, throughout the Old Testament, God is known as El Shaddai and by other names, but here he reveals his name as Yahweh. The name Yahweh or Jehovah implies that this self-existent one who always was, always is, and always will be the faithful and dependable God who calls himself I Am. Moses is going to reveal the name of God and say to the Israelites and to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, everything you're about to see and experience is sponsored by I Am or Yahweh. Everything should be credited to him, and when you see all these things, you will know who this Yahweh I am person is. Now the next thing that God is going to do in chapter 4 is to reveal his power. To reveal his power. God's going to reveal that he is the one true God by his display of power. And he does it through the unleashing of the famous ten plagues. Most of you are probably familiar with it. Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no way, Mose. And Moses says, there you go. No way, Mose. And Moses says, Yahweh, there you go. On page 40, Moses tells Pharaoh that what God is about to do, what I am is about to do, will make it clear to you that he is the one true God to be worshipped. Nine plagues unfold on page 40 through 41. Take a look at it. You can scan them. Or Exodus chapter 7, chapter 7 through 13. I'm just going to read them to you. The first plague is the river is turned into blood. The second plague is 
frogs. The third, gnats. The fourth, flies. The fifth, the livestock is diseased. Six, there are boils. Seven, storms, thunderstorms and hailstorms. Eight, locusts. And nine, darkness, 24-7. Then comes the tenth plague. This tenth plague is not only the display of God's mighty power, but it's also a display of his plan. Let me, what I want to do is I want to read to you out of the story, if you brought it, on page 41 to 42. So if you brought your story, I just want to read this to you. You can also follow along um, in your Bible. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm starting with the second paragraph, or really third paragraph on page 41. I just want you to turn there and, and uh, listen to this and follow along with me. It's a very important part of the story. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was unwilling to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here, and when he does, he will drive you out completely. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says, about midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every, first son in, every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her hand mill and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Now listen to this. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all your people who follow. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they, will, then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be the sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, 
Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the tops and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the tops and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all of his officials and all of the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go and also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country for otherwise, they said, we shall die. If you look on the top of page 43, it says, Now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left, left Egypt. What I want you to do is I want you to take uh, your story, if you have it, and turn to this opening map again, and as we continue not only to uncover the chronology of the story of the Bible, but also teach you the geography, and hopefully you've brought a pen or a pencil or a crayon or a colored pencil, and I want you to continue to mark the story as it unfolds geographically. And now what I want you to do is take and maybe draw a figure uh, representing Moses, maybe a little tent because they wore robes and put an M in it, pop a little head on him, and then maybe in Maybe in addition to Moses, draw a circle around Moses representing all the children of Israel and place him here in Egypt. And now what I want you to do is have him cross over the Red Sea and have him land in that place right under the word Sinai or the Sinai Peninsula or desert. Because how do the children of Israel leave? What is the route that they take? There's another undeniable act of God's power, the parting of the Red Sea. The parting of the Red Sea. And I'm not going to tell you the story, but I am going to encourage you to watch the rest of that uh, animated uh, film, The Prince of Egypt. I, I served on a small consulting team uh, with uh, a bunch of uh, ministers in the United States when um, DreamWorks was putting together that movie. And we sat with Jeffrey Katzenberg, and uh, we were asking him questions and, and vice versa. And one of the questions that we asked him, if I recall, it was Rick Warren who asked him this question. How do you decide to do an animation? And he said, Walt Disney taught us that if the story can be told in real life, tell the story in real life. But if the story cannot be told in real life because it's so fantastic, do an animation. And he said, that's how we picked the story of Moses. There's such an incredible display of power that even though um, they tried to do it with Charlton Heston, I mean, there's nothing like animation to try to at least get close to what it must have been like, the display of God's power. So I want you to go ahead and mark that in your story journal and then uh, in, in your storybook. And then after you do that, what I want you to do is I want you to close your books 
And I want you to close your Bibles. And I want you to look at me uh, uh, for a while. Because what I want to talk to you about right now is, is super important. It's a big deal. You know, uh, every service at Oak Hills, we make mention either in the worship or in the message uh, or in communion about the importance of, of having a relationship with Jesus Christ. But every now and then, we just got to not only mention it, but we have to make a big deal out of it to, to make sure that every single person in the room knows with clarity how it is that we are going to remove this sin nature and come into a relationship with God. And so if you allow me the opportunity, uh, I'm going to uh, tell you as straightforward and as boldly as I can what God is teaching us today in chapter 4 of the story. So bold that I even brought my own cowboy boots in case I need them. I'm going to set them right there. Chapter 4 is teaching us that we're in the same situation. We are enslaved. But we're not enslaved to the Egyptians. We are enslaved to sin. The sin nature that is in each one of us keeps us from a relationship with God. It keeps us from the place that God wants to take us. It keeps us from living. And God is looking sin square in the face. And he is saying on your behalf... Let my people go. But in order for us to be released, we must have the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of our soul. Do you hear me? But in order for us to be released, we must have the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of our soul. This is serious business. Because if the destroyer were to visit you today, if the destroyer were to visit your home today and you do not have the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of your soul, I tell you with graciousness and out of love, you will die in your sins and you will not be delivered. There's a, there's a thing going on in American Christianity right now where we teach what Jesus has done for us but we sometimes, if we're not careful, we, we accidentally give the impression that everyone has got it. But in reality, we don't all have it. The question is, where do you get this blood of the lamb from? I mean, where do you get that these days? Well, if you look over in the New Testament, you'll see in John chapter 1 and verse 29, these words. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Then look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7 and see if you understand it. Paul writes, For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. It's not that hard to understand. God is making it overtly clear to us in chapter 4, way back here in the Old Testament, when he reveals his ultimate plan in the New Testament. Jesus is the Lamb. He is the lamb without defect. He is the lamb without sin. And it is his blood poured out on the cross that becomes the blood that needs to be applied to the doorpost of our soul. Do you catch it? It is the blood that Christ shed on the cross that needs to be applied to the door frame of our soul 
that causes the, the, the lamb to be applied to us and for the Passover to apply to us. Now, the question is, how do you do this? I mean, how do you apply the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus, to the door frame of your soul? Well, it's not because you have worked for it. It's nothing you can pay for it. MasterCard won't do it for you. It's something that you simply have to ask for. It is a gift. You are to acknowledge to God that you are captured by sin, and then you are to ask God to apply the blood of the Lamb of Jesus on the door frame of your soul so that death passes over you. Is there anybody in this room who doesn't want that? Is there anybody in this room who doesn't want that? Well, today, I want to make sure that you understand that, and if you want it, you can get it as a gift to you. In your program today, you received, um, in your program, at the very uh, top of the uh, card, there is a little perforated card, and at the very top of that perforated card, you will see uh, a little prayer card that you can tear out. I want every one of you to take your, your, um, your program and I want you to tear out that little card. It says, uh, it's, it's a prayer card about salvation. I want you to tear that out right now. I want to ask you this question. Because every now and then here at Oak Hills, we've just got to stop everything and make sure we're being very clear about what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ and what it means to be in a relationship with God. Listen carefully. If you have never applied the blood of Christ, the Lamb of God, over the doorpost of your soul, I want you to write your name on that card. If you're not sure that you have done this, I want you to write your name on that card. And I want to make it very clear to you that this application of the blood of the Lamb of God over the door frame of your soul, no one else can do it for you. Your mama can't do it for you. Your daddy can't do it for you. Your sister can't do it for you. Your teacher can't do it for you. Your minister can't do it for you. If I could, I would. You must choose to do it for yourself. Take some courage. Write down your name if you have never done that. Write down your name. Identify yourself right now. And if you want to apply the blood of the Lamb of God to the doorframe of your soul right now, I would like to lead you in a prayer. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. And if you've never done that, I'd invite you to pray this prayer with me. And I'd even encourage you to pray it out loud. God, I need you to deliver me. I acknowledge that I am captured by sin I can do nothing in myself to deal with it I am a lamb with defect I am sorry for my sin and desperately want to be restored to a relationship to you today I apply the blood of Christ the sinless lamb of God to the doorpost of my soul 
This is the decision of my heart. Please do it now. I thank you for forgiving my sins and making me a part of your family and securing a place for me in your kingdom, the promised land. Take my life and have your way with me. In Jesus' name, amen.